computer. In three, two, one. Thanks, Dave. With us, former Major League ball player, former Major League manager, one of the great guys in the game, Phil Gardner. Phil, what's keeping you busy these days? Well, um, now that baseball season's over uh, and our Astros lost, so uh, I've turned my attention to our grandkids and we have a couple of them that are playing baseball and, um, and other sports. And so we spend a lot of time, usually three or four nights a week, going to some sort of sporting event. That's fun too, isn't it? Unless it's pre- or is it more fun. pressure or less pressure? Well, <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, I think it's less pressure, but it's a whole lot more fun. Yeah. So what, what, did, what did you think of the Astros season this year? Well, I, you know, it, it was a, a lot of up and downs. If if you'd asked me at the All-Star break, there were myself and a couple other guys that we commiserate on how the season's going. And we would have said that the odds didn't favor us getting into the playoffs. And then we get down to the last week of the season, and it looks like we may not, we may not even get in the playoffs. And then it looks like we're going to end up winning our division. And, and, of course, we did. And, um and then we ended up in a favorable position in the playoffs, which was probably not a good idea because we we had this unusual struggles at home. We uh, we had a hard time at home, and we we played well on the road. And in the end, it cost us. Yeah, the uh, the season it's crazy when it comes down to the just the last few games, isn't it? Well, when you play 162 games, you think that that, uh, you know, you, you'd you have some leeway in there. But, you know, after we – you and I both have been through it for many, many years now. And when you you play a sloppy, sloppy game in April and you say to yourself, oh, I hope this doesn't come back to, to bite us in, at the end of the year, and it seems like it always does. But every team has one of those. Uh, the team that has the fewer number of those kind of games early in the season, usually the ones that win in the end. So – it was, it was nonetheless, it was an exciting season. A lot of, you know, it was fun for Texas to get in and, uh, and to see them play well. Let's, let's go back to your playing days, if you don't mind. And, and you started, you were drafted by the Expos, didn't sign with them, and then signed and uh, drafted in the, uh, in, in the draft by the Oakland Athletics. How was it coming up through that organization, especially when you arrived in the big leagues? It, it was not the calmest of atmospheres, was it? Well, it it wasn't. But uh, when you look at the big leagues, but um, the minor leagues were was business as usual. We had we had good staff people in the minor leagues, and I, my first spring training, there was a guy named Grover Reesinger, and nobody in baseball, well, you you know, oh, it 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 took us baseball fans would have never heard of his name. I think he had a brief stint at one time. He might have taken over for the Detroit Tigers back in the maybe in the early 60s for a few games when when the manager was sick or somebody got fired. But but he was a great instructor. He was a terrific guy to have to run your spring training camp. And so we learned a lot uh, from him. So, you know, it was it was baseball business. It wasn't all those shenanigans that was going on at the big league level. We weren't affected by that in the minor leagues. So. And all of us players, you know, we didn't have time to worry about what was going on in the big leagues. You're just trying to survive and move to the next level at the minor league level. And we had, we had great, um, we great staff people. Um, you know, of course, Phoenix is a great place to spring train, as you know, and that mm-hmm. was, that was always fun. And, um, and for me personally, 
and for other ball players, you know, I just I had come out of college, and uh, my wife and I we got married when I signed. We didn't have any money, so you know, getting getting uh, six dollars a day to go on the road for meal money was like that was manna from heaven, boy. We thought we'd hit the the lottery and had a whole lot of money. <laughs> when 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 you when you mentioned the instructors you had in the minor leagues, it 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 it, it hit a uh, a spot with me because. Baseball needs those type of individuals, the George Kittles, Jimmy Reese, Johnny Pesky, Perry Hill. Those guys may not, well, a guy like Pesky, of course, who played in the big leagues. People yeah. would know that name, but but the other names, those guys are so important to an organization. Yeah, I, I knew Perry Hill and uh, worked a little bit in Detroit, of course. And and you're absolutely right. It's it's those guys that 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 really help you get along that help polish off you a lot of these guys come into the you know they sign out of either high school or they sign right out of college uh, or somewhere down in the islands you know foreign countries and and they have great skills but they're not polished well enough playing the big league so it's all these coaches and these instructors that that grind every day and don't make very much money as you know Mm -hmm. And, um, and they, they live and die, but how, by how their players do. And, and, um, I just wish there was a way that we could, uh, treat them better money wise and, and with better recognition that, that, that I think they would darn well deserve, but well, you're right. I bet you every major league player that's up there has probably had, uh, one or two instructors along the way that's really made an impression on them and probably, uh, pulled him out of a ditch a couple of times and got him straightened out in, in more ways than one. How much time did you spend in the minors before you got to the big club in Oakland? Well, I, w I was there three three years. And then, uh, so basically three and a half years I spent in the minor leagues. And then then I then I got called up. And, and, uh, and, and I would have spent more time in the minor leagues, maybe. But uh, the Oakland A's had just finished winning their third World Series. And and the team was still fairly young and they were going to stay together. And you might remember the name Dick green was the second baseman on that team. And he was solid. And he, uh, about two or three weeks before spring training calls, uh, the owner, Charles Finley and says, I'm retiring. And so Charles Finley didn't, didn't have anything. He couldn't make a trade. He actually tried to buy Bobby Gritch. He offered Baltimore a million dollars for Bobby Gritch. And they turned him down. Baltimore turned him down. I had played third base normally uh, uh, most of the time in the minor leagues. Manny Trio was our second baseman. You might remember that name. He yeah. got called up to the big leagues. with. He was traded to Chicago that offseason. So Finley had nowhere to turn but to me. And so um, we had good, good uh, uh, people in the minor leagues. But I was probably the best chance he had of making a second baseman. So – I got my opportunity to uh, to play second base and uh, and made the best of it. Actually, he hired Dell Maxville, the old shortstop from yeah. St. Louis Cardinals, to work with me in spring training. So that year in spring training, uh, I was at the ballpark at about eight o'clock every morning. Didn't have lunch, and I would work with Dell Maxville all through that period until time of game till the time the game started, and then I played the game, and then. There were a few times that we would stay after the game and work. So there was a lot of time. And one of those instructors, I would say, in addition to the Grover Reesingers, uh, was Dale Maxwell, who who came down and helped me out a great deal. Yeah. 
So three and a half years in the minors, I'm I'm just I'm bad at math, but probably what fifteen hundred at bats in, in in a large number of games. So you were able to work on your craft there before they got you to the big leagues. And I wonder today if we're rushing those players up. Yeah, they they do. I think players are are. Uh, you know, I, I played college baseball. I wasn't drafted out of high school. And in, in East Tennessee, you typically played uh, 20 games in high school in those days. And in college, we we had a 34-game schedule when I was at the University of Tennessee. But we'd usually get rained out about three of those games. So you end up playing 30, 31 games. I think these kids today, they come out of these college programs. They played a lot of baseball and a lot of summer programs. We didn't have – very many summer programs in those days. So um, I was raw talent. I, you know, I could run pretty good. I had a strong arm. I was pretty strong with a bat, but I was raw. I, I really needed a lot of uh, a playing time in the minor leagues was the way to do it. And, and I got to play, I, it was my goal to play every inning of every game of the minor leagues. And I pretty much did that. And uh, so I think that's what helped move me along quite well. And then when I got to the big leagues, the, the good news was is that I, they didn't have another second baseman. And so I played 162 games the first year. I think I played 160 games the second year. So I played a lot and I, and I played in all those spring training, spring training games too. So all of that, um, I think helped bring me along, get, and uh, help me improve. When you got to the big leagues, was there any, any veteran player that kind of took you under their wing? Well, uh, well, the first the first veteran player that kept me in the big leagues. Well, remember now, I was playing in the minor leagues, and the Oakland A's their team was fairly young. Sal Bando was the captain of the team. I was playing third base, and uh, I thought I I don't have anywhere to go. So I got the bright idea that I was going to be the first player to challenge the reserve clause, and I was going I was going to hold out, not sign my contract, and so so that. Uh, that that's uh, the year prior to my first full year I had held out and hadn't signed uh, as the season started and Charles Finley had told me that uh, that I could just uh, it, it, he called me in the uh, in spring training said just keep keep me he said you can just stay in Houston if you want to and learn how to sell insurance we don't need you up here well he did renew my contract a few weeks later so and that was at uh, at seven hundred dollars a month, mind you, for the five months out of the year that we played minor league baseball. So we weren't talking about a lot of money, huh. and uh, and so I didn't sign it. And uh, about a month into the season, um, I was uh, I was called to the big leagues. Bando had had an injury, and so I sort of, as as a friend of mine said, an attorney friend of mine said. I was sufficiently nebulous about agreeing to sign the contract when I got to the big leagues. And so when I got up there and I, I was in the line, it was against Minnesota. I was in the lineup that night and uh, I'd taken batting practice. And when I came off the field, this traveling secretary said, you got to sign the contract. Well, I had found out then that Sal Bando's just had a bruise on his leg. He was only going to be out for three or four days. And I was going to go back to the minor league. So I said, I'm not signing the contract. And, uh, so the guy said, well, you're going to have to pack your bags and go back. And so I started taking my uniform off and Reggie Jackson, 
saw me taking my uniform off and he said, Hey kid, what are you doing? And, uh, he didn't even know my name. He just knew I was, I was taking Bando's place that night. I said, well, I'm not signing a contract and, uh, I'm going back to the minor leagues. He said, hold on a minute. In those days, no cell phones. So we did have pay phones in the, in the locker room and, he called Charles Finley and, and said, and Finley, I, I was standing right beside him and, and I, I, I probably shouldn't say all the words that Finley said, but he said a few curse words and Reggie said, Mr. Finley, why don't you just ask the kid what he wants? And so, uh, uh Charles Finley said, well, give me the phone, uh, give him the phone. And so I, I took the phone from Reggie and Finley said, uh, how much you want? I said, $900. And the phone went dead silent for what seemed to me like a couple of minutes. And and he said, well, God damn, it cost me that much to send you back to Tucson. Sign the contract and go play. And so I went from 700 to $200 real fast. And boy, I was a happy camper. So I signed the contract, played for a couple of days, and got sent back to the minor leagues. So I sold my soul to the devil for for two hundred dollars, <laughs> Charlie Finley. What he had the reputation of really being cheap and had a lot of battles with his players. Well, you got the better of him there. Way to go, Phil. <laughs> well, no, no, he. Uh, well, uh, let's fast forward to the next year, and so you know he he makes the trade with Manny Trio. We don't have another second baseman in the minor league system. He looks like he's got his team back the next year. And so that's when Dick Green suddenly decides to retire. So I go up and play the whole year. I play 162 games and play pretty good. And so it, and now I'm making the minimum salary. And the minimum salary at that time was $16,000. So I made the minimum salary. And uh, at Christmas, I get a check in the mail for $5,000 from Mr. Finley. And, boy, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, wow, that's nice. Well, I talked to my wife and I said, Boy, that's five thousand. That's pretty nice. I said, but you know, on second thought, I'm going to negotiate hard for a big race next year, and he's going to use that five thousand against me. I'm going to want more than that in the raise, and and he's going to use that against me if I take it. So I sent the money back. I didn't cash oh the check. I sent it back to him, and I get a call from him a couple of weeks later, and he said, "What's wrong with you?" And I said, "Well, nothing, Mister Finley." And he said, "Well, why didn't you take the money?" And I said, "Well." You know, I had a I had a good year for you last year, and uh, I'm going to negotiate my contract really hard this year, and I'm going to ask for a little more money than that, and uh, I don't want you to I don't want to take that money and you hold it against me. And he said, "Son, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Take the money." And I said, "Well, you're telling me you wouldn't use that against me if I took the money in negotiations." He said, "I'm telling you, I won't use that against you in negotiations." <laughs> so. I said, okay, send me the money. So he sent me the money. I cashed the check. Fast forward a, a couple of months, and now here comes the offer for the new year. And he sends me a a, a contract for like eighteen thousand. Well, I sent it back and said, I want I want thirty two thousand. And he calls on the phone. <laughs> he said, What in the world is wrong with you? He goes out of customer, and I said, Mister Finney, I told you I was going to negotiate hard. He said, are you kidding me? You're so ungrateful. I sent you a check for $5,000 and you turn around, you're going to rob me like this. And I said, Mr. Finley, you said you weren't going to use that $5,000 against me in negotiation. Again, the phone went silent and he said, damned if I didn't. And so he said, sign the contract. So I got the money. <laughs> well done. Did, did you play with Daryl Knowles? 
Was he a teammate? I did play with Daryl Knowles. Do you remember the line that he had about Charles Finley when he, when Finley was undergoing heart surgery? Daryl Knowles said it was a seven-hour operation. The first six and a half were looking for his heart. <laughs> I I do remember that now that you say it, but but you know what was funny? There was this love-hate relationship uh, among the players uh, with Charles Finley. He was um, he was hard. Uh, but it, but generous in some ways, uh, but really, really hard with the money. And that was, if you remember, that right at the end of those uh, great World Series teams at the Oakland, mm -hmm. they, they won three straight World Series in there. And right at the end of that is when free agency uh, came about. And Finley was the only smart one in the group uh, regarding free agency. Thank goodness Bowie Coon hated Finley, so he wasn't going to take Finley's suggestion. Finley said, let them all be free agents. And if he'd have done that, the salaries would have gone way down. They, you wouldn't have had the salaries we had today. But uh, Bowie Coon hated Finley so much, he was not about to take his suggestion. And Bowie Coon, that's when they um, they settled on six years to free agency. And, um, and, and from a minor league, I mean, from the negotiating standpoint, I was in the negotiations and and Marvin Miller had given us stats that showed the very best players. If you make six years, you're going to make 10 years in the big leagues. The odds were in favor, way in favor. If you made six years, you were going to play 10. So that if you, if you were, if you had a free agent at the, at the six year level, that was going to, you were going to let the very best players establish the salary scale. And the owners never realized that Marvin Miller did. And um, there was a lot of discussion in the behind the rooms. Uh, Mike Marshall, the, the pitcher for the Dodgers, didn't want to accept six years to free agent. He said, I'll sue all of you guys if you agreed to that. And we we kind of tried to tell him, Mike, if you allow free agency at one year and one year with an option, you're going to have a lot of people in the free agent market. It's going to be flooded. You're going to drive the price down. Most players want a higher price rather than be able to move every other year or two. They'd rather have the security of a longer term contract. So that concept prevailed, and uh, and and free agency became six years. And and uh, we have we probably have Bowie Coon to thank for that because he wouldn't listen to Charles Finley, and Charles Finley was probably right on that issue. How was it playing for Dick Williams? Dick was with the last of the uh, hard guys, the military. Uh, guys that that if you you know if you made a mistake you know drop and give me 50 push-ups and don't ask me why you know yeah. he was that kind of guy he was he was uh he was a fair uh manager uh but a tough he was a tough guy uh yeah i recall at one point in detroit in uh in boston Reggie Jackson this was my i'd called up i want to say it was the year that i got called up in Reggie Jackson had popped up with the bases loaded and in, in disgust, he'd taken his helmet off and fired it over towards the dugout and it spun around and hit Dick Williams on the shin. And Dick Williams was, uh, it had to hurt. He wasn't going to say anything. And so after the game, I'm watching to see what goes on. And uh, I see Reggie go into the, uh, to Dick Williams' uh, office, and I later find find out later. I'm told that Dick Williams said it's a good thing you came in here and apologized, or you weren't going to play until you apologized. And so you would never see that 
kind of, you know, interaction today no. with, with your superstar like that. So that was, that was kind of, that was Dick's personality, but, but the players responded to it. He was, he was not overbearing with it. He just expects you to follow the rules. If you stepped out of the line, and and you you didn't follow the rules or you you didn't play the way you're supposed to play. He was going to call you on it. Now your next club, you went to the Pittsburgh Pirates, and your manager there, Chuck Tanner, had a different style, didn't he? He well, Chuck, yeah, he very definitely had a different style. Now Chuck had a tough side too, uh, but he had a, a a much more congenial side. On the flip side of the coin, he was a much happier guy. You know. It was said many times about Chuck. He never met a day he didn't he didn't enjoy, and that was true. He used to say, "What's not to enjoy when you have a big league uniform on?" So that that sort of enthusiasm permeated the the clubhouse. And Chuck was Chuck was uh, very much a player's manager. He he, but still he he would draw the line. I saw him one time grab a player by the throat and lift him off the ground and put him on a put him on the wall and said, don't you ever do that again? And, uh, and boy, all the players were stunned, but, uh, that player never did it again. So, <laughs> so it you, was, you got to, you, you got to Oakland at the tail end of the three year run where they won those three world series back to back, but 1979, a very special year in your career with the pirates, huh? We are family. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I felt a part of the Oakland A's team, but I, I came at the tail end. My my really first full year was the year that that Boston beat us in the playoffs and went on to play the great World Series against Cincinnati. And that ended the three-year run that the Oakland A's had. But they were still a great team. But I came at the tail end of that, and, and that was a great experience. And I, I wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't ever want to not have that experience. But when I was with the Pirates, I felt like I was with that one from the beginning of building that team. And I came over there with Chuck Tanner. When he get, went, went to Pittsburgh, he turned around and traded for me. And uh, so I felt like uh, I was part of that building process. And and that was a terrific team. The Oakland A's, you've got to give them their due because winning three World Series in a row, that, that's, a, that's a dynasty. you gotta, you got to call that. Um, the 79 team was a terrific team for the, for the pirates. And it was, it was a great team and it was a lot of fun to play on. What, what should the fans know today's fan know about Willie Stargell? Well, well, we, we all call him pops. I mean, and that was probably well-known in Pittsburgh. Um, and, and he was older. He was 44 when we won that World Series. It might have been yeah, 40. I think he was 44 or thereabouts when we won that World Series in 79. So that was his last hurrah. He was the World Series MVP. He was a co-MVP that year at his age. And uh, what a terrific person. Now, now, you know, I, I'm going to say this because there's a lot of race, you know, issues going around in our society today. Now, think back when Willie Stargell came through the minor leagues. There were cities that he was not allowed to ride the bus into the city. They had to stop a bus, let him and a couple other black guys get off out of town. They had to stay with black families. They were not allowed to go in, drink from the water fountains in some of these southern towns. They certainly weren't allowed to eat in some of the restaurants, and they couldn't stay in the hotels. Yet, if Willie Stargell was was happy to talk about it, but it didn't define who he was. He was a gentle soul, a gentle spirit, 
and and I just wish that the players that complain about racism today could hear what true racism was back then, and and how they, how guys like Willie Sargent handled it. And he was a true gentleman, and uh, you know he was the kind of guy you wanted to follow. You wanted to, you wanted to go where he went because because you just felt like he had developed a great sense of wisdom from all of those trials and tribulations that he had to go through when he was a young kid. And, um, and not only was he a terrific ball player, he was a great influence on the field, but knowing his background made it even more impressive. You mentioned his nickname of pops. Where, where did you get the nickname scrap iron? <laughs> well, uh, well, there's, there's two versions. I'm going to tell you one version. And, uh, <laughs> so, so when I got traded to Pittsburgh, um, we we played one game in spring training in in, in uh, Florida, and then we went down to the to the Caribbean and played in Puerto Rico in the um, uh, Roberto Clemente uh, tournament down there, which was to raise money for the Roberto Clemente Foundation. And so when we got down there, I, I was playing a couple of games, and Milo Hamilton was the radio announcer, and he was interviewing Willie Stars, and he said. Okay, Willie, tell us about this new guy we traded for, Phil Garner. And uh, Willie says, well, he's a little feller. You can beat on him and bend him pretty, twist him around, but he's like an old piece of scrap metal. You can't break him. And so Milo picked up on that scrap metal and started calling me Scrap Iron. So I, I like that version of the story. That's a good one. What about uh, what, what about your your transition from the Pirates then you go to the Astros, right? How did that come about? Well, I was disappointed. Um, I had, uh, had made a home in Pittsburgh. Our family, you know, my wife and I had started our family there. And it was, uh, we had good friends. We we liked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's a, a city at the beginning, you know, it's it's uh, it doesn't seem as convenient. We had lived in California where you could, you know, on every street corner, there's a grocery store, there's a packaged beer store. You could buy wine, liquor, anywhere. You know, you can buy anything you want around the corner. Pittsburgh's not that way. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, you got to cross a bridge somewhere. There's always a road under repair to get to anywhere. You can't buy, you got to go into a package store to buy liquor, you, you know, and, and it's some inconveniences. But the people there are wonderful people. And, um, we we really felt at home there so i was we were disappointed when when i got traded but there was a you know there was a, a silver lining in that cloud because in in the time since i had signed professional baseball until that moment my mom and dad had moved from tennessee down to houston texas and my wife carol had a sister that had moved to, her and her and her husband had moved to Houston, Texas. So when we came down here, it was like we had some family here, and so it wasn't like we were just going cold turkey into another city. So we we did have some reasons to enjoy Houston, and what we got here, and we got the um, a little more familiar with the city. You're very familiar with it. It's uh, it's a wonderful place, and we have we've stayed here and continue to stay here, and and our kids grew up here and stayed here, and. And our grandkids are here. Now we've got one that's off to college. We don't know if she's going to stay here, but uh, uh, we do like it here. Yeah. I think about those Astros clubs, and I think in particular of 1986, the playoff series against the New York Mets, Mike Scott 
had them talking to themselves. <laughs> and yeah. game six, and I know it's 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 tough to hear this because you were your your club was on the losing side. That that game went what sixteen innings? Uh, yeah. It, it, it and there's been a book written about it. It's one of the all time great games, but one of the one of the heartbreaking losses I think for a team any team could suffer. Well, that's true. There, it was uh, the book was titled "The Greatest Game Ever Played," and and it was it was a, uh, in the Astros' history. It was the greatest play, game played until one other game was played, and that was the eighteen inning game that we played when I was managing the Astros against the Braves at home. And and uh, but that game had so many up and downs. And if we win that game, we we've got Mike Scott going against the bats. And and you were absolutely right in your your little comment there. Mike Scott was in the head of the match. So they weren't going to hit him. We were going we were going to go to the World Series. That would have been our first trip to the World Series. But but it just wasn't to be and and uh you know what a terrific game it was. It looked like the game was over and then Billy Hatcher hits a hits a, a mammoth home run that I was been taken out of the game at that time and I'm sort of right behind home plate and I I can see the ball looks like it's going to go foul. And at the last minute, it looks like it straightens out and hits just the edge of the foul pole, mm -hmm. the outside edge of the foul pole. And, and it, it ties the game up. And at that moment, I think everybody thought, Oh, this is our destiny. We're going to win this thing. And so it, uh, it wasn't to be, it, it ended up being a tough loss and those dreaded Mets went on to the world series and, uh, and Boston beat them. So, uh, or no, it wasn't Boston. It was, uh, no, they, they beat Boston. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah and so it's, the ball went through Buckner's legs. Uh, yeah, the ball went through Buckner's legs. That's the, right. Uh, the home run Hatcher hit. I, I did hundreds of events in the Astrodome while I was in Houston. And I was there the night Earl Campbell scored the four touchdowns on Monday night against Miami. But the Hatcher home run, I can never remember that place being as loud as when Billy touched that one off. It was it was unbelievable. Now that game had gone so long there, I, nobody left the stadium. But what we later learned, you might recall this, that people had stopped on the freeway and they were listening to the game, and people got out of their cars and they were yelling and tooting horns and and yeah. carrying on when he hit that home run. So it was a it was a great experience. And and boy, you're right, it was rocking when when that happened. And that's why I say. We, I, I think if you ask uh, every man on that ball club, they would have said, "Yeah, that means we're going to win." <laughs> and yeah. It, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cruel reminder of reality. Baseball is sometimes. Speaking of of, of cruel reminders, I, I think back to those Astros clubs, and if if J.R. Richard doesn't st suffer the stroke, if if Dickie Thon doesn't get beaned by Mike Therese, yeah. What careers they would have had, what 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 those teams could have eventually done. Well, those and two very uh, good players. He, oh yeah, and and Dickie Thon was coming along. He was going to end up being one of the better offensive shortstops in in all of baseball. I think he he was coming along, and he was young right at the beginning of his career when that happened, and and that was tragic. And I think Jr. would have been. I think he would have been a Hall of Fame guy. Um, I think he would have had a long and, 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 and terrific career at that time too. And Joe Sambito right after that blew yeah. his elbow out. He was one of the top relievers in the game. He was right in the prime of his career. I, he would have had four or five more good years. So I think you're right. I think we had, um, a good nucleus 
to to build something around and and those those things hurt um there's no question it hurt the ball club and we we had a good um you know if people have asked me over the years you know will you go with the 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 oakland a's they were the they had fights among themselves as a matter of fact i remember a newspaper article saying that we had something like 14 fights among ourselves over the three years that the <laughs> that the the team was winning the world series that was you know infighting in the clubhouse pittsburgh we were a raucous bunch up there you know it was uh, um, a crazy bunch of guys wild and clubhouse was wild you go in the clubhouse in houston it was very subdued everybody was you know as a matter of fact you know it, we had a, a religious contingency contingency there that were were very calm natured guys. Uh, Bob Nepper was very calm nature. Um, Terry Poole, very calm nature. Craig Reynolds. Uh, Chael Cruz, pardon? Craig Reynolds. Craig and Craig Reynolds, who is now pastor of one of the largest churches in, in Houston, Second Baptist Church, uh, the wow. Kingwood um, deal. And so, you know, um, yeah, they were all. And they were all good athletes. That's not to take anything away from their play on the field. They were just, their nature was just very calm, relaxed. Um, didn't, you know, they just weren't uh, hyped by nature. You've been very gracious with your time. And we've got a few more minutes left. And I'd like to talk about you as a manager. You go to Milwaukee as the manager. You you manage the Tigers. You were manager of the Astros, got them to the World Series in 2005. Did you enjoy managing? I did, Jerry. Uh, I, you know, the progression is um, there's nothing that beats playing the game of baseball. It's so much fun to play. I, you know, you can affect the game. You just you get in the flow of the game. It's just a beautiful game to play, um, and, and that is tops on my list. The next best thing is coaching. Um, you know, because then you get to you know if you if you're the infield coach, you've got um, six eight guys that are depending on you to try to help them out. So you feel like you can affect a game where you can, uh, you can help these players out. And then, then it comes to managing and managing is a whole nother world because you take on the responsibility of the whole club at, at once. And then after it doesn't take you long to realize, and this is what happened with me in Houston that boy, you know, you've got the whole, you've got the whole city, the whole area where your fan base is that you're beholding to. And when, you know, when things go badly, everybody suffers, not just you and not just your players and their wives and families, but all the fans, they struggle. And then when you win, boy, it's, it's jubilation. It's a lot of fun to this day. I get people that'll, that might recognize me. They'll stop me and said, Thank you for 2005. We had more fun. Our families got together that we hadn't seen in years. Kids came home from college to watch the World Series games. It, it's um, it's um, a wonderful experience when team when your when your baseball team wins. And because it's such a long season, I think people get more more into it by the time the end of the year is, is going. I I just think it all builds to that final. Uh, those final world series games and man, when it comes together and it all plays out the way you'd hoped it, that you dream it's going to play out when you start the season, it's just a lot of fun. So managing for me was all encompassing. It was, it was the final step to, uh, to be involved in the game. Cause you feel like you can affect the game. 
you feel like you have um, um, sort of a maestro, you're, 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 you've got all your players at your disposal, but then you're also, um, you're also wanting to make sure that you put a good show on for all the fans. And I, 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 it was a wonderful experience. I, I, I was blessed to be able to do it for a number of years and, um, and a lot of good, uh, good experiences. When you were managing the Astros, they were still in the National League. Prior to that, Milwaukee and Detroit in the American League with the DH. The Astros didn't have the DH at that time in the National League. Was it much different, different managing from one league to the other? It is. Um, all the um, managing in in the National League is much uh, is much more involved than managing in the American League in in a in in a little different sense when you when you don't have to worry when you have a dh and you don't have to worry about your pitching you have to become a little bit of a uh, more of a psychological uh, uh manager with your pitchers you have to kind of get inside their heads a little bit more than you do when you're managing in the national league national league your your moves many times are predicated on where you are in the ball game. If you're in the seventh inning, you're down three runs. Your pitcher may be pitching okay at that moment, but you got to take him out. You got to pinch hit for him. Mm-hmm. Well, in American League, you didn't have to do that. So the decision process is in in the in the National League much more fun from a managerial standpoint and much more involved. And you have to think ahead uh, much more in the National League game than you did in the American League game at at the time. I think you you learn you try to learn how far you can go with your pitchers in the American league, but you, you have to learn how far you can go with your whole team when you're in the, in the national league, you have to be prepared to make your moves. Cause as slow as the game seems for some people, it's, it can be slow until all of a sudden it's not slow. And if you don't have a pitcher ready, you don't have your bench ready at the right moment. It's by you. And, and when the game's over, you know, you think back and say, Oh man, I missed my, I missed my opportunity. And you see it with, you know, you, you realize if when you're managed against good managers, you look and you know, he's prepared to counter whatever you're going to do. So it, it becomes uh, the national league style with the, with the pitchers having to hit was a much more fun way to manage as far as I was concerned. Next week, the, the baseball winter meeting started in Nashville. And one of the reasons I wanted, we wanted to visit with you, what was it like being a manager dealing with your general managers during that time, during the winter meetings, what kind of conversations went on? Well, you have good conversations if you have a if you have a good rapport with your general manager. And fortunately, I had good rapport. I felt like with all the general managers that I had, and we were close together. For instance, who, who they were they. You know, I had, pardon. Who, who were they? Your, your GM. I had Sal Bando. Mm-hmm. I had Sal Bando. I had. Uh, um, uh, Randy Smith, who was Tal Smith's son when I was in Detroit, mm-hmm. and I had uh, Jerry Hunsinger uh, when I was down here in Houston, and and then he got fired after we had a good run, and um, oh, I'm just drawing a bank on on the other guy that took took his job, and I know him well, and but I think we all had good good rapport, uh, and so when you 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 sit down at the end of the season, there's not there's not uh, rest time for a general manager that job is a 24 hour round the, the calendar year job. So that guy's thinking, always thinking, even if he's in the middle of the year, he's thinking about 
what you're going to need for the playoffs. So he's got to juggle the minor league system where you're, where you're weak there, where you're weak at your major league system. And you may need some help in case you have injuries or somebody's just not having a good year. So he's got to think about all those things. And when the season's over, you sit down the general manager, the manager, and sometimes your, your uh, scouting department and you say, this is what we think the team needs. And so you have that conversation and, and the manager typically wants more power hitters and more power pitchers. And the GM is thinking, well, those cost too much money. They don't fit in the budget. So, so we're going to have to, we're going to have to uh, shave that down just a little bit. So there's always that that you got to deal with. And, and, but both, both people know that going in. So you make your plans on how you're going to improve your team you know, where your weaknesses are that you want to try to make your moves in the off season prior to going to your winter meetings. So, so that there's a lot of work going in to prep before the winter meeting. So these GMs and these managers now, they are, they're working around the clock to try to figure out where the trades are, uh, where the value is on some of these other teams and how, how's it going to fit on your team. There's, there's a lot that goes into that. A lot of effort goes into that. You got a couple more minutes. I do. All right, let me let me bounce this off of you. I watched a documentary the other night, and and it was about the Cardinals in the 1980s and Whitey Herzog taking over and Whitey Ball and the style of play that they had. To me, the Astros, the teams that you played on, similar speed, pitching, defense, stealing bases. Could that first of all, is that comparison fair? And secondly, could that work in today's game if somebody had the guts to to, to try it? Um, uh, that's a that's a fair uh, assessment of of the way our team was. Um, our team was basically built. I always felt like when I came to the Astros, we were built on on speed and defense and good pitching because the Astrodome was so big. Mm-hmm. It was hard to hit home runs. I led the team in home runs one year with 17 in the Astrodome. So that, you know, imagine everybody else is hitting 30, 25 to 30. I hope you got paid. Pitching. I hope you got paid. <laughs> well, um, but uh, the that was just, uh, that was that was the way it was in those days. Now, fast forward today, I am amazed at the number of power pitchers that I'm seeing in the game. Everybody, every team has, you know, four, five, six guys that are throwing 95 miles an hour and usually several guys that are throwing 95 plus. So those, by definition, for me, are power power plus pitchers. Every team just about has guys with a lot of power on their team. So, um, and and that what that means is that it, with one swing of the bat, the game can be flipped really quickly more so than it could have happened with our old Astros teams. So, uh, yes, I, I, I don't, I think teams are not going to try to go that route. I think everybody thinks they've got to have power, power hitters today. Um, you've got to have exceptional pitching if it's gonna, if you're going to work. In other words, you got to keep the ball in the ballpark and the way the balls are flying out of the ballpark and some of these stadiums that you're playing in, yeah. Uh, the Philadelphia's, uh, the pitch, well, Pittsburgh, not so much, uh, Cincinnati, um, Colorado, Baltimore. some, Baltimore. Ball, yeah, yeah, Baltimore, some of these stadiums you're playing in, 
but it doesn't take much to get the ball out of the ballpark. So it'd be hard to do, but if you have a, if you have a home field advantage um, that you could build on power speed and great pitch, but you got to have great pitching. And, and that, by that, I mean, you got to have four really, really good starters that would be one and two starters uh, you know, on everybody else. And you got to have a solid bullpen. You can't win today without a middle relief being solid and, uh, and, and your, your setup and closers have to be solid. So yeah, I think technically you do it, but you'd have to have an exceptional pitching staff. A lot of strikeouts in this day and age too. And you, you would get 500 at bats a season, almost 600 at bats a season, yet you never struck out a hundred times in a season. Contact. Well, yeah, you, yeah, you see that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it, you got docked for that, uh, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> and I still, I still, I, I understand some of the saber matrix involved in that. Yeah. Don't, don't give up the chance of hitting a home run, but, but no. there's a lot of guys you can look at on your team and say, you're not going to hit a lot of home runs, put the ball in play. Something can happen if you put it in play. And especially when you have a runner at third base and less than two outs, that that's, that's one of the things that to this day frustrates me and probably every other manager that's ever managed. Cause that seems like such a simple thing to do. It's just put the ball in play and you're going to get a run across the, uh, across the board. So, um, and, and I used to say when I'd have my team meetings, I, this is overly dramatic, but I would say, um, I ask you guys to put the ball in play and you're going to tell me, well, they made some good pitches on me. And I'm going to say, let me give you an example. If I put a gun to your firstborn child's head and said, if you don't make contact, I'm going to, I'm going to kill your son. Now that's overly dramatic. But I'll tell you what you would do. You would darn well make some kind of adjustment to try to just touch the ball, wouldn't you? I mean, so, yes, it's you're capable to make that adjustment. People just – you don't get rewarded for it like you used to. And so uh, guys don't do it. So, uh, yeah. Our, our, our listeners have been rewarded by this visit with one of the great guys in the game of baseball. Phil, thanks for the time. Well, thank you, Jerry, and it's good to reconnect. I haven't talked to you in a while. Good to hear your voice and see you're doing well. We're hanging in. Phil Gardner, thank you so much. We'll you send bet. it back to Dave D'Agostino. Dave? Let me stop the recording. Let's see.